welcome to the Sociology Annex. I'm Jean Beeman at University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm Netta Megbula at University of Toronto. And today we're joined by Patrick Ingalls at Grinnell College. Hi, Patrick. Hello, everybody. So I thought what we would do is talk about sort of doing ethnography in other countries as are all people who were trained in countries where we did not do ethnography. So Patrick, why don't you talk about, um, so you have a different perspective also because you're also Canadian and then you were, were educated in the United States and then you do ethnography in India and now also in Mexico. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So my, my first time to India was in January, 2006 part of a separate project that had nothing to do with what I ultimately did. And then I went back in January 2007 to start my field work at these golf clubs in Bangalore, India. It just, uh, at the time, I mean, India was on the cover of newspapers every week and Time magazine and and other magazines. And I mean, the the subject was about globalization and liberalization. Uh, Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat, had just come out. And it just seemed like it, it seemed like a very exciting time to be in India and thinking about what was happening there. Obviously, a lot of things to, to talk about and do research on in, in New York, but I just, I, I've always had this thought that I, I've been less interested to study what's in my own backyard, if you will. And there was an opportunity to be in India. It's interesting because your own backyard is not even the U.S., right? No, that's right. Yeah, I've, I've been, I moved to New York City in August 2003 and left 10 years later, and I've been living in in Iowa since. So, so 15 years total in the United States. So what was your prior connection or relationship with India? I mean, like, why India? Well, I, I, had, I was a public high school teacher in Vancouver, Canada, where I'm from, and I taught high school English there for five years. And I did a master's degree in language and literacy education. And there's a professor who I worked with who I worked on a, on a project about journal systems, open journal systems. And he um, he was invited to give a talk while I was uh, at the CUNY Graduate Center. And the talk was going to be in Bangalore and he couldn't go and he asked me, me asked me to go in his place. Oh, wow. And there's there's something about luck, fortune. I mean, it just sort of happened that he invited me to give this talk on his behalf in Bangalore around the time that I had to come up with a dissertation proposal. So... It was fortuitous, and it's it's all worked out. But I, I think that's part of being like doing qualitative ethnographic work is you just you you go where the story is, and where you land, you figure out how to make sense of it. And India, for me at the time, was such a I mean, and still is, frankly, is a very puzzling place to be. And as a sociologist, it's I mean, it's a, a very rich ethnographic field. Yeah. As broad, I mean, it's massive, of course, and I've only, I've, even now, I feel I've just sort of gotten a slice of it. Yeah, I'm curious to ask both of you, Jean and Patrick, to what extent, while you were doing your training for your PhD at like large, you know, US R1 institutions in sociology, did you feel that maybe sociologists didn't understand where your field work fit, given that it was not local to the US? Did you ever feel like, people were trying to pigeonhole you into anthropology or a discipline that has sort of had a a longer standing global imperative. Uh, I'm just curious about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I so I do ethnographic work in France, and that came out of my dissertation, but actually came out of my sort of fascination with France, like twenty years prior, actually. Um, and so I was really fortunate when I was doing grad when I was in grad school at Northwestern that there were actual faculty who had done international work and had done international ethnographic work. And so, in some ways, I didn't feel as weird being training to be a sociologist studying another country, particularly as an ethnographer in that department, I've only felt like more odd or realized how odd it was leaving grad school. And I often, I mean, even today, I still get the sort of anthropologist question, like, why did you go into anthropology, blah, blah, blah. So I do think, yeah, I, th I think I was just really fortunate to be at Northwestern at the time that I was at Northwestern to do the particular project that I did. I think if I were coming up now, I, it'd be much harder to do that kind of work in, in a different kind of space. I think for me, I, I mean, I, I still get, I mean, I, I, I think I don't always quite feel at home uh, when I go to conferences in the United States that I find, I find American sociology, frankly, very provincial. Yeah, I agree. And local. And, why I to discuss this. you know, I, I mean, I, so I'm doing this new research in Mexico and I've been living, I mean, I was on sabbatical last year and living in Mexico for eight, nine months. And I came to ASA in New York, and I wanted to talk about Mexico, and people are like, "Well, that's nice." And so, like the i and 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 the idea being that like the only thing to know about Mexico or talk about Mexico is Mexicans or Latin Americans who have moved to the United States, mm -hmm. right? People who are undocumented. That's mm -hmm. a subject. What's happening with with the drug trade to a degree? But a, a sort of deeper sensibility and understanding and even curiosity about Mexico and Latin America, I, I didn't find that. And I don't find that. Um, and I didn't find that when it came to India. The challenge for me has been with the India work, also not feeling quite at home among the South Asianists and the South Asian scholars, because I don't necessarily see myself as, as a South Asianist. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm an ethnographer. Why that, like, why not? I'm curious what that means to you. I, I see myself as an ethnographer of labor, capital, and, and political economy. And I never felt and still don't feel that when you commit to studying a particular place, you sort of throw up these like ideological academic barriers and only think about what's been written on that subject matter or that place that and I think I think my approach to sociology generally is very multidisciplinary mm -hmm. and so I, I lean in I lean on uh, like multiple literatures and yeah that I mean there's a South Asian scholarship of course and it's vast but I, I didn't feel at home in that literature either Mm -hmm. I really relate to that. I think area studies is so mm -hmm. important for us as sociologists to draw from in order to contextualize our findings. But ultimately, I think the commitment to sociology that that we share and why we we can't really truly, as you said, feel home is that we're fundamentally interested in the process. And there's an mm -hmm. urge toward generalizability there mm -hmm. that isn't necessarily the imperative yeah. in area studies. And so yeah. I really relate to what you're saying, Patrick. Yeah, I don't, um, as you say, I think, I mean, as sociologists, we want to think about, of course, the particular, but how the particular suggests or reflects something more universal. 
Mm -hmm. It's funny, though, because I think in American sociology, that still ends up becoming a provincial sort of a comparison. So Mm -hmm. even if at ASA, you came back, you know, wanting to talk about Mexico, and someone was willing to do that with you, the underlying Mm -hmm. question they'll still have is, so what does this finding about Mexico really tell us about the United States? Yes, right? (laughs) What does the view from Mexico reveal about here? Yeah, that is such a good point, because I think even when we're thinking comparatively, we're all, it's always vis-a-vis the U.S., and why should Americans care, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I completely agree with that. Well, Ned, why don't mm-hmm. you tell us about your experiences um, also doing research in different countries? Yeah, you know, my appointment now is at a university in Canada, and so I'm doing, you know, research that's like embedded in my local area here. And uh, despite the fact that, you know, Canada and the United States are in close proximity, very similar in many ways. Um, When I've spoken to a variety of people, even at the most recent ASA, whether it's, you know, editors at academic presses or Mm. really incredible senior scholars in the field, it always comes back to, you know, what does Canada tell us about the U.S.? So the thing I just said two minutes ago is like (laughs) deeply informed by this important kind of real talk that like, very reputable people had with me in New York that was like cool story about Toronto or like cool story about Canada but ultimately you know for this to gain the widest possible audience and the biggest possible reach you have to really have a deliverable that's about what the case of Canada says about the United States and it was just one of those moments where I was sort of like okay I'm living with the choice now that like Mm -hmm. I was trained in U.S. sociology. I am situated in Canada now, but I'm still going to the ASA and I'm still like really invested in my relationships that are in this organization and with collaborators in the U.S. And so this will be something that I attend to, right? Unless I completely, I think, withdrew my, all of my relationships and the sort of interests that I have there and went full on Canada to like, you know, the Canadian Sociological Association, which I'm a member of and whose meetings I attend, you know, and yeah, it's just, it's one of those things. Like, how do you manage and sustain that relationship? Yeah. I mean, one question I had sort of been thinking about discussing this is sort of like, okay, so is there, is there a Canadian sociology that you feel like you have to engage with? Like, I mean, of course there's a Canadian sociology, of course, but like, do you feel like you have to engage with it in this project now that you're doing work, ethnographic work in Canada? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, in general, we have a really robust federal funding system for our academic research. And so that does actually create a level of commitment that you have to informing the public here in this space by engaging other researchers who are funded by these sources that come from SHRC, which is like kind of our social science and humanities NSF of Canada. They constantly are bringing researchers from Canada together in these sort of like SHRC um, sponsored spaces. And so there's a way that, that my kind of I think um, funding trail makes me feel like a deep commitment to collaborating and, and doing knowledge dissemination with other Canadian researchers and sociologists, for sure. I also feel an imperative toward my like grad students here in Canada that I need to network them with Canadian institutions as well. And so there's like this competing force where I want them to have networks of scholars and sociology in the United States to open up those opportunities, but to really right. recognize that like my work is funded by the Canadian government. Right. These are, this is the the public that I'm serving. My students right. are Canadian or, you know, they're, they're living in Canada for the time being. And so, yeah, there's a way that it kind of spreads you really thin, but it can also 
I think, be super generative too. Yeah, and I think the point about the sort of institutional context or institutional constraints is really important too. Netta, you, you made me think about this because um, thinking about sort of finding audiences for our work. So I don't know the experience that either of you had, but like for me, you know, it took me a while to get my first book contract um, because I think, you know, one of the main feedback, pieces of feedback I got was like, why would Americans care about France? And so, I mean, in some ways, it's mm-hmm. sort of made me craft my perspectives very mm-hmm. differently and to sort of think more, you know, significantly about these lessons, but I do think that that's something that people who do ethnographic work in the United States don't have to think about. So I was curious if either of you had that experience as well. Well, I, I just, I mean, over the summer, I think it was middle or end of August, I, I had an op-ed in the Washington Post that came out in which I, I was explicitly asked, how, how does this research figure Mm-hmm. into anything that's going on in the United States. Uh-huh. And I, it's something I'd actually been thinking about a lot, so it, it wasn't so difficult, but that the labor processes and the informality and precarity that I was observing and had observed in India with these poor lower caste golf caddies uh-huh. is something that I see more and more prevalent in the United States. So to talk about, you know, it, it's become popular to talk about the gig economy. Uh-huh. And for me, like, I mean, Thomas Friedman's book comes out in 2005, 2006, and he wasn't alone. I mean, there were serious social scientists as well. And the argument being that, you know, that India was going to become more like the United States mm-hmm. in terms of its of labor and, and, and support for education and healthcare, et cetera, even infrastructure. And lo and behold, all these years later, it's sort of trending the other way. Mm-hmm. And so that that's that's what I explore in that op-ed piece. That wasn't so difficult for me to to figure out, and I, and I think it was it was useful. I, I think it is useful to think about how the work matters in a global context. But we don't always. I don't. I don't think we always want to be thinking about how it matters to Americans, to American audience, mm-hmm. right? Right. I think that's the tension. So, like, yeah. So, thinking about like how it matters outside of India is one thing, but how it matters vis-a-vis like to Americans, I think, is a different conversation. Mm-hmm. And 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 how for for either of you, for both of you, how is your work? I mean, we're talking about how it comes back to the United States and how it how it might say something to to an, to an American audience, academic or otherwise. How do you think about the audiences in the places where you've been doing your global international research? Um, and, and I'm going to ask Jean this question because I'm just I'm, I'm just going to India this this weekend of the next few days, and so I haven't even had the experience yet. But you've been back and forth to France. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's a fantastic question. Yeah, I mean, it's something else I kind of wanted to talk about, like because one of the things that happens with my work because it's primarily on race and racism is that I'm basically going against, I mean, I'm the only person that does this, but I'm going against a sort of dominant narrative where these things are, you know, are said to not exist in France. And so I think I get pushback talking about that, talking about the fact that racism exists in France, and then particularly talking about the fact that racism exists in France as an American, and particularly as a Black American. So yeah, so I think there's like, I, I sometimes feel like my the way my work's interpreted I, is something I can't divorce from my own sort of identity as a you know, as a scholar, but then also sort of my personal identity as an African-American or Black American, right? So, but in terms of sort of talk, so there's sort of an academic response that I get, which is probably more pushback, but that's sort of anticipated because of what I just said. And then, but then among the people that I actually speak with, 
they more get it, which is sort of part of, which is in and of itself is more part of the findings of the book that like, you know, there is, there are these global connections around race and racism, even if societies such as the United States or France organize very differently. And so that's sort of what came out of the work. And so it made sense to bring that back to the people I spoke with, but the harder, uh, I mean, still I struggle with this is sort of speaking to French, French trained academics in France who there is not as much of a space in French academia or French sociology to talk about racism as there here is here in the United States. For me, I'm just I, off the top of my head. I'm just thinking about how you know how my work does and and will, if it will, speak to South Asian scholars. Uh-huh. And for me, it's not just the geographical question, but there's also like an analytical question and what you emphasize. Uh-huh. And so you know, for for individuals, for scholars, whether they be in India or in the United States, who who imagine or think that caste and religion mm-hmm. are these variables that drive all activity and thought in India. The master categories. Mm-hmm. These master categories. I, I remember, I, I, I won't say who it was, but I remember I, I approached a scholar who I admired, who I still admire, and I, I asked them about India, and they'd never been to India, and they immediately cut me off and said, well, I, I don't know anything about caste. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And it was like it was like like we we can't have a conversation yeah. right. because India, this country of one point two, one point three billion people right. is only dominated by caste. And there's no there's no conversation to be had about anything else. Right. Yeah. That was remarkable. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's remarkable. Yeah. yeah. People do the same thing in France vis-a-vis Islam. So when I say I'm talking about racism, like, no, it's really Muslims. Like Muslims are all over the world. OK, but anyway. Yeah. Right. What, do, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this resonates completely. Obviously, Canada is not quite the same as France, where in France, you just have an entire disavowal of the category of race. But uh, for sure, right, um, there's a really different ideology around racial difference and the influence of multiculturalism and just, you know, that Canada has had a very different immigration policy. And so for sure, like, part of it is just that I think we have to figure out which concepts are actually serving the research that we're doing, which audiences mm-hmm. we're the most interested in engaging with. And I think it can be really special when people will pick up our books in spite of the ways, right, right that we haven't seized on categories that were especially like salient or meaningful for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also think I wanted to talk about sort of doing ethnography in a different society from where you live or where you're sort of trained to be a sociologist is also this question of positionality, right? So as I alluded to, I mean, part of what's, I mean, what is implicated in my own ethnographic work is being a black American, but being a black person in a different society where there are also black people, but there's a different understanding or, you know, seemingly a different understanding of race and racial categories. And then I know, Patrick, you talk about your own identity as a non-Indian person in your work. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think, I, I think one of the advantages, there are disadvantages too, but I think one of the advantages of being an outsider, mm-hmm. right, as like doing ethnographic work as an outsider is that you might, you may potentially see things that somebody who is native to this geographical or cultural context don't see. So that's how I, I mean, in some way, try to defend the work is that I may be all these other things white male middle class from vancouver canadian Mm -hmm. and you know what what do i have to say or add to this 
to what anything's going on in India. Mm-hmm. And I think it's this outsider perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, again, I, I'd like to hear what you, mm-hmm. what you both say about being outsiders in the context that you've been yeah. doing research. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting is that, so, I mean, with ethnography, you're always, you know, are often an outsider in some capacity, right? Like, even if you're studying, yeah. like, you know, whatever. So, but then there's also like layers to be an outsider. And so one of the things that came up for me in my work, um, my book was a revision of my dissertation, was that, you know, I felt very much like an outsider as an American, but then, you know, many people I spoke with, you know, saw me as an insider because I was also a racial minority. And so there was constantly mm-hmm. tension or this sort of, push and pull between being an outsider in some ways, um, not being French, but then also being an insider as knowing what it's like to be, you know, subject to racism on a regular basis, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. That's sort of what ended up, I ended up playing with. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, and then specifically to being an American, it was really interesting because I felt like, and I would also be curious what both of you think about this, is there was also sort of what was happening was the sort of perception of the, you know, average French person of the average American person, which is not a high um, impression. And so, you know, French people assume that you don't know anything about France or no one knows anything about France. And so I felt like it was helpful for me as an ethnographer because people would explain things to me that they assumed I couldn't possibly know, like French history or just things around French republicanism, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then there also was a sort of, there was always a sort of like implicit critique of the U.S or what it must be like to be an American by because that's how French people saw being an American for them. I mean, I'm generalizing both ways, but that for the most part. And so I was curious how that came up for either, how that comes up for either of you. Well, so, I mean, for me, obviously being white and clearly foreigner, like people took the opportunity, particularly the wealthy members of these golf clubs, took the opportunity to instruct me about India. Mm-hmm. And in the process of the instruction, they they reveal their ideological biases. Right. Right. So, you know, caste doesn't matter, of mm-hmm. course, because we have privatization and globalization and free trade, and therefore caste doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I heard this line repeatedly, well, you're a foreigner, you won't understand. Mm-hmm. And then I'll sit back and say, well, tell me. Mm-hmm. And then and then they'll they'll go on and on and on. I mean, it's it's perfect. They think you're a foreigner, like as an American, because you're. American. No, they, I'm curious about that distinction, if any. Yeah, that comes up in the research in Mexico. Okay. So people tell me, and they've told me that tell people that you're Canadian, not American, mm-hmm. because the bias is the bias is against individual citizens of the United States, mm-hmm. and so it's one of the things that I clear up. Like okay. right away, immediately. In India, it doesn't come up. I mention it, but it's not a, not as big of a deal. And I gathered that they would even prefer to think of me as American because the view of America in India generally, certainly among the elites that I was studying, is positive. And the elite of Mexico think differently about Americans. Does that make sense, right? I think so. I think there's a really different colonial trajectory in both countries we could probably like sort of think through um some of the different reasons why that might be but i ultimately canada was part of the commonwealth Mm -hmm. to which india was also subject and so i think you know being from white canada (laughs) in india is really a different claim yeah i i and i i have two passports i i have a passport from the united kingdom through my father, who was born in England, and and I have a Canadian passport. I was mm-hmm. born in Canada, so 
that's something I, I I played on, right? Like that I I was related to or connected to this colonial legacy. And you might be, you might be thinking, well, wow, that like why would you ever divulge that? There's a section of the Indian elite who have a very romantic mm-hmm. nostalgia mm-hmm. for this colonial past, and that actually the British were on the right path, right? And and Indians can't ever get it right. This right. is the, one of the dominant discourses among the Indian elite. So to to say that I I, I was a British citizen or subject mm-hmm. to them was I mean I think I think they appreciated it. Fanon weeps. That's all I have to say. (laughs) Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you for listening to the Sociology Annex. This is Jean Beeman at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Annetta Mike from University of Toronto. And Patrick Ingalls from Grinnell College. Okay, bye everyone. Bye, thank you. Bye. Thank you.